Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, but we're going to do it by taking a look at an idea that has been floated around for a number of years called agorism. And uh, you can be an agorist. Somebody said uh, on Facebook when I made some comment about something or other <laughs> on, a, on a group, uh, they said that they were an agorist. And uh, so I thought, like... I, I've heard that. What What is an agorist? And so I went and looked it up and did a little bit of study and research, read some of the stuff by some of the original coiners of the phrase agorism. And uh, it's evidently a libertarian social philosophy that advocates uh, creating a society in which all relations between people are voluntary. Now, that's that's the basic sum-up principle of agorism is that you're trying to create a voluntary society. No, it, so it's a little bit like anarchism, uh, libertarianism, allowing people to do what they want to do. And uh, there's a number of people who have written a lot of stuff about it and and even people who have tried to gather together in agorist societies where the, you know there's supposed to be these three elements of agorist society. And uh, you have to move towards that in a progression by first, you know, you're this scattered group of agorists, and then, then you become more organized. Uh, and as your numbers increase, you actually create an economy in the uh, agorist community that is based on volunteerism. And uh, and then there's other steps in this process. As guys have written about it, but we're not going to go through every single thing that anybody's ever written about it. What what some people began to add to that definition of agorism, and they did this almost immediately, was uh, the philosophy by further advocating the exchanges can only be, only be made by means of what they listed as counter economics, and uh, thus engaging with aspects of peaceful revolution. That's what they're talking about—a peaceful revolution with the use of counter-economics. Well, what's counter-economics? Um, that, they have another definition for that, because that's a new coin phrase. You know, it's hyphenated counter-economics. What is counter-economics? The study or practice of peaceful human action within, uh, which is forbidden by the state. Peaceful human action, which is forbidden by the state. Now, I'm not sure exactly what peaceful human action is forbidden by the state, but uh, the term is actually a shorter version of the phrase counter-establishment economics. So, now I know that it's uh, it's against the law in the United States and probably in many other countries to utter something as money. And what does it mean to utter something as money? And we've done shows on this. You can go look up real money and things like that, and, and and we could go into that in greater detail, but basically they're trying to create an economy that is not dependent upon government-issued currency. And, and most people don't understand government-issued currency. I mean, we used to have U.S. dollars, U.S. notes. I have some samples in uh, 
kind of little collection I have of small bills. You know, I have uh, some Hawaiian money that was produced when Hawaii was a uh, uh, part of owned supposedly by the United States. Although that's that's even a questionable term because uh, how you own property in uh, Hawaii is a little bit different than anywhere else in the United States. Same as in Louisiana, have a little bit different uh, legal system to begin with. But uh, and there are some property in Hawaii that is not really owned by the United States or anybody else, and that was part of the deal to begin with. But it is also pretty much unoccupied property, and so. But anyway, you have it would get very complicated to go into the way in which Hawaiians look at property ownership. Uh, there was property ownership amongst Native Americans as well. It was a different kind of property ownership. You know, there was tribal areas. And if you were from another tribe and you were caught in this tribal area, you could be in a lot of trouble. They enforced this often brutally. So the idea that Indians didn't own land, that the land was owned by the great white father, you know, the great father of, you know, uh, uh, you know, the great buffalo spirit or whatever, you know, and there's a lot of different tribes. Some tribes hardly even dealt with buffalo. But the reality is the Indians did have a concept of property rights. It just was different than the European ideas of property rights. And, of course, the people who are advocating uh, agorism, they have a different view of property rights as well. So there's, But they do have a view of some sort of property rights, and that varies because there's a number of different people who write about agorism. You know, this counter-establishment economics uh, commonly does not allow the establishment to be free of its counter-establishment activities. In other words, they admit that they're trying to create a revolution and replace or make superfluous the establishment's economy and have their own economy. There's a problem with that. And that is because you do not start on a clean slate. You know, we all are are born into this world and inherit our rights. rights. That's what we call inherent rights. And so if your parents don't have certain rights, you may not have certain rights. You may not. It just depends. And so we have to kind of look at that. Rights come from the law of nature. And unless you are hatched by a cosmic egg somewhere, you have a history in that natural scheme of things. And... People need to recognize how that works if they really want to be free. And if they don't want to look at the reality of natural law that exists, there's a lot of opinions as to what natural law, but natural law actually exists in the universe. It's part of creation. Creation moves according to natural law. But we often have uh, difficulty understanding what natural law actually is. And I heard a debate, actually I just heard part of it today, really wasn't much of a debate, but you had somebody talking about, you know, a fetus is a part of the woman's body. And uh, the the other individual said, well, no, it's a body within the woman's body. It's somebody else's body. It's a, a completely distinct DNA that is of its own. It's growing on its own. It's developing on its own. But it is... You know, this zygote nourishing itself off of the woman's body. And, but it is a separate life. It is not the woman's body. It is another body living inside of the woman. Now, that's just a fact. 
Now, whether she wants to commit an abortion, she can rationalize that all she wants. I'm just telling you that's another body. It has another DNA. It's very soon forming its own brain and heartbeat that is independent of the brain and heartbeat of the mother, as well as any of us are independent of the brain and heartbeats of everybody else around us. In reality, in the cosmic world, in the uh, in, in in the world of the quantum uh, uh, spiritual reality, is that your heartbeat is not as independent of everybody else's heartbeat as you might want to think. You are connected, and uh, you know, like twins are connected even more so. We've done a lot of stories on that the mysteries of twins raised apart actually having shadow existences of each other and memories of each other. So somehow or other they're, they're connected, uh, even though they have a separate heart and, and mind. We too are connected to one another, but certainly a woman is connected to the child and the child to the mother, and if the mother wants to abort the child, she's probably physically capable of, capable of making that happen, but she is aborting another being. From her and saying, I do not want to give life to this being. That's her choice. She's making that choice. Is it a good choice? Is it a moral choice? No. In my opinion, no, it's probably not a good choice and it's certainly not a moral choice. And, but it may be made for lots of different reasons. But that's not what we're talking about. Where we're talking about agorism. So let's get back to agorism. The reality is, is that child is inheriting its right to life from the mother and from the father. Because what is created in that woman is not entirely the product of that woman. That woman by herself could not produce that child. She has taken genetic substance from somebody else and is producing that child. And that's why that child is a separate individual. Neither the father nor the mother, but a separate individual. So anyway, the show's not really about abortion, but that may be important to understand... Some of the things that the average agorist is missing, that this separate entity is an individual that is a product of two other individuals. And maybe before they're born, it'll be the product of a lot of other individuals who participate in the life process of producing that child. Somebody's going to be feeding the mother. Somebody's going to be taking care of the mother. Somebody's providing for the mother. And so they're actually part of the parentery of the child that is being conceived and produced within the womb of the mother. All these things are connected. All these things are affected. You're just not born in a vacuum. And the agorist has to realize that he's not born in a vacuum. That there is a natural law in place. And if they... If they ignore that natural law, if they ignore the consequences of that natural law, it does not mean the natural law will not have an effect. And so when you're going to be creating a whole new kind of society, you need to look at the whole aspects of that society and of any society and what creates it, what binds it together, what holds it, what makes it viable. If you remove that embryo from the mother, it will probably die, unless you have some artificial way of sustaining it. If you remove yourself from society with a callous disregard for the development necessary for producing a new society, separate from the first, 
you will get yourself into a lot of trouble. And that's what a lot of agorists are doing because they don't fully understand the quantum cosmic nature of a society. Now, a society is a group of individuals that come together and bind themselves together by some means. It may be an emotional binding. It may be a spiritual binding. It may be a physical binding. It may be a contractual binding. But you are bound one to each other, yet you remain individual entities within a society. You are not, you know, like some sort of... uh, uh, colony, colony of cells that have become an entity unto itself. Yet there is an element of that, a corporate nature to all societies. There is a contractual corporateness and there, there's an emotional and a spiritual and a moral corporateness. And that when we had the show this morning, we talked about the fabric of society and all these elements of the society. We talked about elements of the world. All these elements of society contribute to the life success of that society. And if an agorist overlooks those, he will produce a society that will not remain viable. And that's often what happens. There have been a lot of agorist societies, voluntary societies that have existed throughout history. And we talk about a number of them on on our website. You can go look at some of them. And I put links to some of them in the article that we put at Preparing You that you can can look at. But this idea of establishing this counter-establishment economics, uh, this system that is counter to that economic system of the state, and the establishment created this pres- by the presence of the state, uh, to be the driving force of agorism is not enough. It's not enough to hate society or the establishment to bring everybody, agorists, together to create a viable society. Certainly it can drive people together. We all hate the system, so we're all gathering together because we all hate the system. That's our commonality. Not going to be enough. So there has to be more. And what more you add to that will determine the success or failure of that society. And we'll take a look at some successful agorist societies in a big way, successful, uh, in a, in a international, uh, worldwide way. And then what happened to those agorist society? But anyway, this idea of an agorist economy and, uh, how that would work, uh, Derek Bro- Bros, uh, writes in an article, What is uh, Agorism? A History of Agorist Theory and Practices in Regard to the Rise of a Peruvian Subculture. And he said, Faced with ongoing violence and uh, the Maoist rhetoric of the shining path on one side and the status regulations and theft on the other, the people of Peru chose to travel to the countryside and create an informal marketplace for trading, ride-sharing, housing, etc. This is what free-thinking people will do when faced with constant threat of theft and bureaucracy. Now, what they're talking about theft is they're probably a lot of times they're talking about taxation. Now, sometimes there is a real theft, like on uh, Indian reservations. One of the reasons they're poor all the time is that if you fix up your house too much, the tribe may take that house away from you. I mean, it literally can happen that way because you don't have any property rights 
in your house in the tribal setting or very little not very well protected property rights uh so you don't want to fix things up too much and of course we have that in the regular society if i uh, i had a friend who had a log cabin in the woods and a bunch of kids and you know they had an outhouse and all this stuff but they were doing pretty good the kids were all healthy and full of juice and doing well and the father was hard working but uh, it was just a log cabin and he tar papered it from the outside to cut out the cold winds way up in northern Minnesota. And uh, he finally got enough money together to put real siding on his cabin and to put in a toilet. And so he added a bathroom. And his taxes went up like uh, more than four times what they were before. Because he improved his place. Now the state comes along and says, we want, they don't want the whole place. But we want you to pay us more because you fixed up your place. Because you pay, fixed up your place and made a better place for your family to live, you owe us more money. Now, the whole of society thinks that's okay and they do it all the time. Under the guise of, you know, well, we can tax the rich. Well, this guy was dirt poor, hard working, but dirt poor. And he improved himself by working really hard and saving up his money and and improving his cabin. He had the land already and the, the kids were all well fed and, and like I say, they were really a bunch of good kids. But he didn't have plumbing. Now he saved up his money and he put in plumbing. And now he owes all of you out there in the world more money every year because he fixed up his house. That's the same as what you see going on on the Indian reservation. It's just a little bit different form. It certainly is not agorism. It's the antithesis of agorism because he didn't get to voluntarily contribute more money to the government. He was going to have to do it or they would take his house away. Well, of course, the stubborn old guy that he was, he went and tore the toilet out and threw it in the yard and tore all the siding off and called them up and said, lower my taxes back the way they were before because I don't have those things. And that's how stubborn he was. Well, you know, Maybe you're not that stubborn, but it was the principle of the thing to him. He just was not going to put up with that. He thought that was unjust and he was going to do something about it. He wasn't going to have a violent revolution, but he was said, well, then I'm not going to have a toilet if that's what you're going to do to me. So he took, took it out. <laughs> and he went back the way it was. So anyway, uh, the Peruvians were concerned about this constant theft and they said they had the Maoist rhetoric of the shiny path on one side and the state on the other. I don't know what people think Mao, when he created the communist government he created was another form of the state. <laughs> and it taxed the people too. Uh, and it plummeted the people into poverty equally across the world. Actually, it wasn't all that equal. If you were in government, you did really well if you were not in government, you became a starving peasant. And people starved by the thousands, maybe by the millions. I mean, the 60 million people died during his shiny path cultural revolution. And they're still dying. Tortured to death because they have crazy ideas like love thy neighbor as thyself. That actually goes on in China today. You know, and if we really had an honest news reporting people and honest government, they would be showing us what's going on there and maybe we wouldn't buy so many DVDs from them. But anyway, people aren't doing that and so therefore 
evil is allowed to flourish. Eventually, not that it isn't flourishing here too, because you remember that guy who tore all these things out of his house was tearing them out of his house because all of you taxpayers wanted to tax him more because he made something better out of his life. That now you he owed you more. And you think that's okay. That's covetousness, in case you want to write that down somewhere. And that's against the Ten Commandments. It's against the teachings of Christ. It's against the the teachings of Moses. So if you think you're a Jew or a Christian or even a Muslim, because they believe in the Ten Commandments, and you think it's okay to force that man to pay more taxes because he fixed up his house, then you are fooling yourself because you're not really a Christian. Because that's not a Christian. That's not what Christ would do. Now you say, well, Christ said, you know, he established the government. He didn't establish that government. He established a government. It's called the church. And the church doesn't charge you anything. doesn't compel you to sacrifice to it. The governments of the world do. The gods of the world do. That's a different thing. So anyway, some agorists might get that. This is what free-thinking people will do, he says, when faced with this constant threat of theft of bureaucracy and bureaucracy. Eventually, the people tire of having every aspect of their lives invaded by the state, so they will seek outside solutions. This may include reformist schemes like electoral politics and voting, or possibly violent revolt, and then he goes on in the next sentence, counter-economics and agorism offer a third path towards liberty, a path that is peaceful and consistent and reflects the realities we see unfolding in the world today. Well, sounds great, you know, on the surface, but how do these people interpret what agorism is? Again, they say agorism is this ideology of society, of a society that supposedly promotes the the open marketplace, untainted by theft, assault, or fraud. Yet, many begin that society with the intent to defraud the established society, the established society that already exists, that they were born into, that they were conceived in and raised up in. They went to public school, I never went to public school, but most of these people have gone to public school. Their parents are being taken care of by uh, social welfare of the state. Uh, their their siblings, their neighbors, all the welfare is taken care of by the state. Almost none of it is taken care of by modern churches. or It was all taken care of by churches 200 years ago and, and, and private charity. But the Agorists doesn't see that history. He just says, I want out. But the reality is, and you can go read our other articles on it, is that you have become a surety for debt. Now, just before I came on uh, the radio, I was seeing that uh, they were talking about the trillions of dollars in debt that the United States is in, and it's rising all the time. And, and the vast majority of what they pay in income tax actually just goes to pay the interest on the debt. And uh, that debt is constantly expanding and it's being placed on the shoulders of your children and your unborn children. And, of course, aborting children, it's, you know, it's, uh, it puts, it just increases the debt on the individuals who survive over abortion. Uh, there was just a vote this last week in Congress to extend electronic medical records to all illegal aliens. 
so they're now going to extend at great expense to the taxpayers electronic medical records to be tracked with all illegal aliens. They have been trying to get that passed in Congress for veterans and the Coast Guard for years. They have not passed that electronic that can follow them, electronic medical records that can follow them. Not that that's a good thing or anything, but they think it's a good thing. But the uh, present, mostly Democratic Congress, uh, voted that illegal aliens can have it, but they have not yet uh, voted to allow veterans and Coast Guard people to have it. So they, they have to, they don't have as many privileges as an illegal alien has today. And, you know, it's just to me that's bizarre. But that's what you're going to get when you create a system where the rulers rule you and exercise authority. You've created offices of power and men of power will seek offices and they will not be just. They will take and take and take and take and take and they will put your children in harm's way for their power. That's what they will do. And the only reason they're extending this to illegal aliens is to help illegal aliens come into the country in droves because they hope them to be the future voter base to keep them in power. Because all they're really interested in is power. You're eating the tail. (laughs) And the tail is your tail. You're eating your own tail. But all this comes from a spirit that dwells in the people when they think it's okay to covet their neighbor's goods. And to elect men who can exercise power to take away from their neighbor so that they can have the means by which to give you benefits. You want to take a bite out of your neighbor through government and that's the policy that you've created in the last 100 years in the United States and every other country. And unless you change so that you don't want to take a bite out of your neighbor, that you want to take care of yourself, take back your responsibilities for yourself and your community and your family, you're going to continue to go down this this rabbit hole of destruction. And that's where everybody is going. And so the Agora sees that there's a problem, but he has to see the wholeness of the solution. And so what eventually, you know, I said what is conducive to the life of the individual is conducive to the life of the free of a free society. You don't you don't have a right to take from those people who remain in the established state. You have to establish this free society without taking away from them. And this is what this individual was saying on Facebook. He says, it's not theft to take back what was taken from you without your consent. And of course, he paid taxes, so now he wants to collect Social Security and welfare and all these, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, and all these other benefits. I think he's actually in England. But he's saying all those things were taken from him by theft. But the logic to that, and I'll leave you with this and we'll take a break. And then we'll come back and show you what the real solution is. We'll look at uh, Kevin Carson and and Gary Chatier and some of these other people who talked about this. They were kind of anti-capitalists and pro-socialists, but also thought they were agorists. Uh, But... What this guy was saying, that he was an agorist and he's just taking back what that was forcefully taken from him, that's not true. That's not what he's doing. What he's done is bet on a horse at the racetrack. The horse lost. It lost. 
his money is gone because he bet on a horse at the racetrack, and he's and the horse came in last, so he didn't he doesn't get his money back. So he goes, and he robs the children of the groundskeeper at the racetrack. <laughs> That's what he's going to do. What has been taken from you was taken from you because you were signed up or you signed up. You sought the benefits. You wanted a job. The only way you get a job is you want a job with us. You got to get one of our numbers. Take a number, please. You want want the butcher to wait on you at the meat shop. You got to take a number and he will wait on you when your number comes up. And that's what everybody's doing. They're taking the number at the meat shop. The butcher's cutting up people in the background, the back room. It's Soylent Green time. Because the benefactors that are providing you with these benefits are doing so because they took from your neighbor. They took from that old man who put in a toilet and took out a toilet. They, they are taking and taking and taking and taking. They are absolutely willing to take a bite out of your neighbor and you went to them for benefits. And you signed up and you became a numbered member of their society of covetous practices. That's what you've done. Now you want to create a free society by robbing the very society that you joined and leaving with as much goods as you can leave. Now the Israelites did leave with a bunch of goods when they left a similar system back in Egypt. Most people think that, oh, they were all in bondage in Egypt and they saw the movie with Charlton Heston and they were being whipped in the mud pits and all this kind of stuff. Not the way it was. I'm sure there were some people whipped in the mud pits. But what it what it was, was a core V system of statutory bondage where a portion of your labor was taken away every year by the government. You either worked it off or you, you paid in something of value that they would take in exchange or maybe you hired somebody. Actually, what it appears is that if you were wealthy, you just had to hire somebody to work for you for 20% of the year. And they would represent you and you wouldn't have to go and work for the Pharaoh. You would send this guy and he would do the work for Pharaoh. And you would pay him to go do that work for Pharaoh. Now, that that 20% of that guy's work year was used up. And now he will work for somebody else who will pay for him to work. And so he's got employment all year round. Working for these guys who are wealthy who don't want to go to the mud pits or stone quarries and work. And it was, it was, they didn't need much slavery in Egypt with that Corby system of statutory bondage. That's what you do. You just have a different form of bookkeeping now. You go to work at McDonald's, right off the top, you know, 14% of what you earn is going to go into Social Security and then another percentage is going to go into income tax, state income tax, federal income tax. Then you're going to pay in more when you buy something that there's sales tax on. If you buy land, if you rent a house, or rent an apartment, portion of that rent is going to property tax. So you're just doing the same thing with a little bit different bookkeeping system. You're taking life from your neighbor to provide for the system. Now people say, I don't like the system I want out. And I want to take as much of what is I put into the system as I can when I leave. You don't get to do that. Now there is a way that that could come about. And that's what Israel did. Israel stopped taking the benefits and they took care of one another. That's what the story is all about. And they took care of one another during very hard times. And because of that, when they finally left Egypt, they were given a great treasure. 
Now, exactly how all that came about, I'll have to tell you, and I have told you at other times. But uh, we're going to be talking about agorism, so we need to take a look at what uh, what that would look like today. Because what Moses was teaching the people is how to work as a nation in a voluntary society. There were no kings in Israel. There were no taxes in Israel. There was tithing in Israel, but that was you tithe to the minister you chose, and you only had to tithe to him according to his service. It wasn't automatic. No Levites were kicking in your door because you didn't give them a tithe. It's very clear in the history that a lot of people refused to give certain people funds, and uh, even when they had kings, they didn't want to support certain projects, and they didn't have to. As a matter of fact, forcing the people to contribute was considered an absolute violation of God's law. And nobody was allowed at first to force the contributions of the people. When Saul did it for the first time, he was told that his kingdom would fail because he had done this foolish thing. Now, all Christians do it, all Jews do it, all Muslims do it, all atheists do it. They are all part of a system that forces the contributions of the people so that they can have benefits at the other people's expense. But we'll take a break and we'll be right back to Keys of the Kingdom. Okay, welcome back. So, Kevin Carson and Gary Cartier uh, consider themselves to be anti-capitalist and identify as a part of a socialist movement. But they consider themselves agorists as well. By definition, socialism has never never, ever, ever produced a society in which all relationships between the people are voluntary. It just doesn't do that. Uh, um, certainly wasn't in Stalin, certainly wasn't under Mao, certainly wasn't under Popat, and wasn't under, because the very nature of socialism. Socialism is an economic and political system. If it's a political system, there is a certain amount of coercion in that system. Politic systems produce coercion. A democracy is coercion. 51% of the people rule over the other 49. So socialism is never, can never be an agorist society. They, the two do not mix. You can't be a, a, a socialist and a Christian at the same time. You can't follow Christ and be a socialist at the same time. Those two things do not mix. Now, capitalism is not a political system. And uh, therefore, it could be a truly voluntary society and could function uh, with a free market. A capitalist system could do that. But most capitalist systems are also have an additional political system created at the same time. And usually it creates a corporate state. Some sort of corporate state that can exercise authority over the people. You know, and, and like creating an amendment that suddenly says corporations have this equal status of any other person. And anyone who is a citizen of the United States is a person and therefore a member. It's no longer talking about individual and person are not the same thing. That that. You know, if you go back at dictionaries back in in um, the early 1900s, 1920s, 1940s, we're telling you one of the most common words that people were mixing up is individual and person. They are not the same thing. A person is a member. 
In order to obtain membership, usually a portion of your rights are invested in that property or that system where you obtain membership. Now, that varies greatly, and sometimes it may seem very small, but that's actually what is taking place. So, capitalism, just capitalism, no political systems added. It means the means of production, which is mostly your labor. You go out and collect nuts in the woods. The nuts you collect are yours. The nuts you don't collect still belong to the woods. (laughs) And somebody else has. If you plant a tree, and you water the tree, and you grow up the tree you can develop a property right in that tree because it would not exist without your effort. You know, a wild tree is one thing, but if you create an orchard, you put all the trees in a line, you create dig irrigation ditches, you bring in water, you ha- and protect the trees and prune the trees so that they produce lots and lots of fruit, hack away the weeds, you have an extra right to the fruit of that orchard because you have invested your life, blood, and sweat into that fruit. Now that nature and the nature of that natural law of production, nobody can eat fruit out of that orchard without eating some of your sweat, without taking a bite out of you. So you have the right to grant permission as to who can eat in that orchard because you grew it. Now, how far that right goes and not goes That's another matter. We can discuss that. But at least we know that you have a property right in that fruit because you produced it. It just didn't grow in the wild. So, Konkin and Shulman, Konkin is one of the guys who really kind of coined this idea of agorism. Uh, They had, they both considered themselves agorists, but they also had different concepts of intellectual property and even property rights to some degree. Uh, Conklin wrote that the uh, article entitled Copy Wrongs in support of such thesis, and Shulman uh, criticized his ideas in uh, informational property, which is something he wrote, which is uh, logo rights, you know, the right of the word. You write it so you have a certain right into it. Really, what all this, you know, we can go into, and I have an article up, I think actually, uh, uh, yeah, we have an article up on intellectual property. You can go read that and get a better idea. But the reality is, is that you sweat and toil and write a book, and then you go and print that book, but in that book you say, I have a copyright on it. You're, when you're selling that book, you sell it under the condition that nobody can copy it. That's that's a matter of contract. You notify them ahead of time. Like gleaning in the fields. Okay, you go in and you pick all the fruit in your orchard and some of the fruit is still there. According to Israel, you had to let widows and orphans come in and pick what's left. You're even supposed to, they talk about leaving uh, some of the corners of the orchard unpicked. And again, once you understand the metaphors, what they mean by the corners. In other words, yours to, because... All of the product of that orchard is not entirely your labor. You don't have total property rights over it. So in order to protect that natural right, you have to share what you have produced. You get to do it according to your own choice because that's what the kingdom of God is always giving you choice. God has given us life and knowledge and understanding, this creative influence. You want to call him God or the great spirit or whatever you want to call it. 
He has given us the power to make choices. And if we make bad choices, like we're selfish with what God has given us the power to produce, we bury our talent, we we hoard all of our, the food that we produce, then we are, are going to subject ourselves to the natural law and we may become poor again if we do not care about the poor. And that's just built into the system. I'm not going to explain the quantum mechanics of it, but that's the reality. And Agoras need to realize that. But anyway, these two argued about this. Uh, but like I, I go on to say, that few seem to grasp how this natural law works, or even what it is, and how things operate in this natural law to set you free or to bring you into bondage. Remember, the Israelites sold their brother into bondage, and they ended up going into bondage under their brother-in-law. That That is the nature of the spiritual reality of the natural law. The quantum mechanics of the natural law. That is where you will go if you if you do contrary to natural law. Now, people will argue with that, and I'm sure there are gorists out there, oh, he's just talking about Yahweh, and that doesn't make any sense, and I don't know anything about that. I've never seen that. But we can go into great detail and explain that, but not not in an hour-long program. <laughs> so, you're just going to have to find out more. Uh, I noticed I had spelled something wrong on the page. I was going to try to fix it, and I can't even find it, because now I'm looking at code, you know, kind of like the Matrix, and I can't find where I was going to fix it, so I'll fix it later. Uh, so all this is kind of put together on the fly. You know, I mentioned Hobbes. He, he considered this. But I mentioned, what I mentioned is uh, the power of the state. Where does that come from? Uh, because there's so much in existence in the world to begin with. There's so many rights and powers, etc., in the world to begin with. So how did all this power get in the hands of the state? What's the mechanism? And I just mentioned Egypt. The pharaoh got power over the people where he owned 20% of their labor. That was the deal. That I will feed you and you will survive this famine, but you will owe me 20% of your labor and your children will owe me 20% of that labor. And they did until Moses came and set them free. And that's really an amazing story when you actually understand it. And we will probably address that when I address a lot of the stuff that uh, that other people have said on it, and we'll do videos and we'll try to lay it out for you. But Hobbes, anyway, the, the, that power took at least two forms, potestas and imperium. And I spelled imperium with an E, and actually it should be spelled with an I, imperium. <laughs> and so anyway, that's what I have to fix. But that power gets vested in the corporate state by what you do and what will your parents do. When Israel said, yeah, we agree to that terms, then what the children inherited was this bondage in Egypt. Now, originally it was pretty good because the Pharaoh was very generous and he loved the people and he cared about the people. Eventually, though, this became an office of power. How that came about is what everybody should know if they're trying to form a free society. Because if they don't understand that process, when you go out in the wilderness to form your agorist society, you will create the same problem again. And I can give you countless examples where people have done this. And they have given power to other people and they found themselves in a worse bondage than they were before. It happens all the time in South America and in Africa as well. But Hobbes, what I was going to get down, Hobbes saw the natural state of man, that's before the creation of the state, where he had all these powers, the potestas and imperium vested in himself. 
that he was a solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. A state which self-interest and the absence of rights and contracts prevented society. Well, that's not... Hobbes is incorrect. But to some degree, he is correct. Because the natural man who has have a fallen nature of a selfish nature, that's what he's going to be. is a solitary, poor, nasty, brutish uh, sort of man. If he is a noble man, he's going to take care of his children. He's going to take care of his wife. He's going to take care of his neighbor. And without contracts, he will not be solitary, poor, nasty, or brutish. He will be a part of a free society. And everybody in that free society who does the same will be a part of an ever-growing society. But something often happens where that process is reversed. And we may get to that before the end of the show. John Locke understood that from the beginning and he saw the natural condition of mankind as in the state of nature where man could be noble and uh, or he could be less than noble. He could be wicked. And this was the discussion of this state of nature was this uh, was only completely intolerable when men are brutal and intolerable. The moral man does not need the politics of Cain and Nimrod nor Caesar to subdue his brutish nature. Because these guys thought that you had this natural brutish nature. And of course Cain did. But the natural brutish nature is going to create the body politic. Because he is absolutely willing to take a bite out of his neighbor to covet his neighbor's goods to cover what his uh, covet what his neighbor produces, and this is what Cain and Nimrod and Caesar did. What they did was offer benefits to the people at the expense of their neighbor, and became rulers over the people. Greatest destroyers of liberty are the givers of gifts, gratuities, and benefits. So you, you go back and look at what uh, some of these guys like uh, Carson and uh, Cartier was thinking about socialism. Socialism is is covetousness it is its very nature it is covetousness so anyway uh, and then I quote Pufendorf also and most people some people when I quote Pufendorf they say there's really a guy named Pufendorf <laughs> he was considered one of the greatest thinkers of the last four centuries and wrote prolifically but you're not going to hear about him in college today most colleges today because he made too much sense and they don't want you thinking that where things make sense. He says the likes fundamentalists, which, you know, I have an article on that. I think there's actually, uh, uh, well, we'll put a link into that article. But, uh, the natural law article will probably take you there. And I'm sure there's some links on here that will take you to that. I see a couple more typo mistakes in my coding, but I'll fix that. But anyway, the, the natural law is the duty of every man so far as in him lies to strive that the welfare of human society in general be secured and maintained. So, if you're going to create a uh, an agorist society, you can't do it just to get your stuff back and to do your own thing. You have to care about everybody else in that society equally. Uh, if you don't, your society will fail because you're erring on the side of being that brutish, solitary, Nasty, <laughs> poor individual. You have to have this noble intent. And that noble intent, that virtue, is what needs to bind your society together. And that's what Moses was teaching the people. 
in hard times how to take care of one another. Fill each other's water vases. Provide for each other. They not only did that so well that they survived intact through these famines where the government was overwhelmed and couldn't provide for the people, but they were actually able to help a lot of the Egyptians out and save the Egyptians who didn't have this societal means of taking care of one another. They didn't have this network of charity, volunteerism, to help take care of one another. And we see it during some natural disasters where, you know, like Katrina and stuff, where people just started helping one another. And they did more for each other than the government was able to do. The government actually got in the way, a lot of times, of people helping people. And so understanding how that works is how you move back towards a free society. If you don't invest in that free society, you won't make it. So Moses was teaching the people during the time that they remained in bondage, didn't receive any benefits, but not only were able to survive the famines and the and the plagues that came, they were able to have enough resources to help other people and to be the good Samaritan of the Egyptian society. So when they were finally kicked out, and they were kicked out because they had stumbled on the secret of freedom. So they were kicked out. And when they were kicked out, the people blessed them with gold and silver and possessions of these things. And actually, even some of the government people did that as well. And of course, that's what was happening at Pentecost with the Christians. Which is why the Christians were almost hated from the beginning. Because they made everybody else look bad. Because they showed them what they were doing wrong. And see, now I'm just telling you what everybody's doing wrong. People who think they're following Christ and are not really bad people in a lot of ways. Are not taking care of a daily ministration operating by faith, hope, and charity. They're simply not doing it. And that's what the early church did. What the Pharisees did at the time of Christ was they had a forced offering, a forced sacrifice called Corbin. Corbin is not supposed to be forced. The original Corbin was free will offerings. That's what it says in the Old Testament. But by the time Christ came along, those free will offerings had become forced offerings of a political system. And they were forced into the treasury. And then the treasury turned around and took care of the elderly and the aged and your parents and everybody else. That's what we do today through Social Security. But that is the Corbin of the Pharisees. We have lots of articles that will show you about that. And uh, I have a Pure Religion article there that you can click on. And that will tell you what Pure Religion is. How to take care of the needy of your society through that voluntary free will offering. You have to have that to create the bonds of society where society will stay together and help one another in hard times. Whether those hard times are famine or invasion or CME or floods or uh, global warming or global cooling or any of these things. And so that the early Christian society and the early Israelite society were true agorist societies. It was a corporate nature to part of this society just to get the ball rolling. Now, if everything was perfect, you wouldn't even need that. But the Levites were literally a corporate body. The early church was a, a really a corporate body. Now, the early church was just the ministers that served the people. The people were in free assemblies, free congregations, what they call free assemblies in the Old Testament. We call congregations in the New Testament. But they weren't corporate. They were altars of clay. The people, the families, was the only corporate union. 
your husband and wife and the children. That was a sort of corporate unit. That's what corporations imitate. Modern civil corporations imitate was the family. And the corporate state imitates the family and therefore the the state becomes the father of the people. And that's why Christ said, call no man father. And there are links on the page to the articles that will explain all this. It, what amazes me though is Agoras seldom mention early Israel. They mention uh, James Scott. And I have an article on James Scott and his art of not being governed. And it talks about the upland Southeast Asia communities. Uh, Pierre Castrez, I guess is his name, uh, Society Against the State. I have not read his book, so I don't know much about him. But a stateless society is not really a stateless society. It's absent a corporate state. The power that ends up in the corporate state comes from the protest on an imperium of the individual. It gets there because the individual asks the state to take away from his neighbor to provide him with benefits. And then when he does that for a generation or two and then does it with borrowed money, the whole society becomes in debt and you can't just leave. You could leave if you had some place to go, but I'm not sure where you're going to go. The moon's not really very inhabitable yet and just about every place else has been taken up. Even if you went, there were some people trying to do a sea, uh, sea community and they got this little flotation house out there and everything. They were going to try to get other people to come and join them as off the coast of Thailand. And then, fortunately, they fled just before the Thai Winnie's army and their gunboat showed up because that's illegal. Uh, and so, you know, I commend the people for trying to do something. But really, Christ had the answer. He didn't say take from the state. He says, give the state what is the state's. But seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And the kingdom of God is where God is the king of your heart and your mind and your soul. And this brings in the quantum element of spirituality. And you're a free soul under God. That's what you're seeking. You don't seek it by undermining the state. The state is there for a reason. To punish the wicked. When when Paul is talking in Galatians, which I read this morning, I didn't explain it all. I just explained a certain part that I was trying to share with you. But Paul talks about it eventually in that chapter where it talks about turning this individual over to Satan. Actually, in... 1 Corinthians 5, they talk about this, turning over. Satan is the adversary. The adversary is the world government. Now, there's a spiritual Satan, yeah, okay, but even if you don't want to believe in the spirituality of it, the manifestation of the spirituality is seen in the state. So if this individual continues with these bad practices, they were going to just say, well, you go to the state, we're not going to help you anymore. But it's an individual choice. They were cast them out. Is an individual choice. And you have to begin to see how that works as well. And we'll just have to save it for another time. Because like I say, we only have an hour today. So that's all we're going to give you. But uh, join the network and we'll explain this more and more. How this works. And how you can presently, in this day, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to 
His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.